This is the Fail Fast Podcast. Stories of entrepreneurs who looked at failure in the eyes and didn't give up. With your host, the online sales master, Quinn Amorum. Welcome back to the show, my friends. Today we have with us a multidisciplinary storyteller, an artist who spent two decades working at the forefront of global visual effects industry. We're talking about Lord of the Rings through Alice Through the Looking Glass. He's the founder and CEO of a Vancouver-based immersive content production company, Pan Sensory Interactive, through which he created the interactual virtual reality film Downloaded, which is currently on the international festival circuit. In addition to this, he also performs spoken word poet. He's a musician, a comedian, and a public speaker. We have with us Ollie Rankin. Ollie, how's it going? It's good. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here, Ollie. So, I mean, I talked about some some big names here in the intro, but that's not it, right? You work with some really big franchises. How how does that happen? For one, and two, how is it hard working with like Lord of the Rings? I heard it's The Matrix too, X Men, right. Alice in Wonderland. This is incredible. How how does one get there? And two, how hard is it? Yeah, I mean, I like to I like to joke that my career has gone downhill ever since I worked on Lord of the Rings because it's pretty hard to top that. You know, I, I got that as my lucky break. Um, what it turned out to be was, you know, I studied artificial intelligence back in the in the mid in late nineties, back before it was cool, yeah. um, and back when it didn't really have anything to do with with filmmaking. Um, but I was very fascinated by. Uh, computer programming, computer science, and and AI in particular. And it was just, yeah, it was my lucky break that they were looking for people that understood AI when um, to to choreograph the big battle scenes in in The Lord of the Rings. So that was how I got in. Um, And then it was a sort of a, it was a new technology that was being developed at the time, and there was a lot of interest in it. And there was this whole slew of movies that came out, you know, obviously the Matrix sequels, as you mentioned, sort of got into that sort of massive crowd, um, what we call crowd simulation or battle simulations. Um, And then, you know, I I worked in London for five years on a bunch of films like Troy, Kingdom of Heaven, The Chronicles of Narnia, all of those sort of things. Um, So that it was that one particular skill set that I had sort of, uh, you know, perfected and and got really, um, I guess I got, typecast as the crowd guy and I spent sort of 10 years of my career um, doing that stuff um, but always with a bigger vision for uh, you know uh, being involved in other kinds of movies and in other kinds of storytelling Um, and especially having this interest from from when I was a teenager for virtual reality so this whole time I was waiting for VR technology to catch up to the imagination of the science fiction authors that I'd grown up reading. Wow, Ollie. So just so we can understand here, what what exactly do you do? For example, let's say Chronicles of Narnia that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. There's all the things that don't exist in real life, you create them? Like those monsters and is that Yeah, so I'm so I'm part of a team of people that is creating it, you know. So there were there were hundreds of people spread across dozens of visual effects studios working on a project like that. Um, my my particular job in that case, um, because I'd sort of moved up into into supervision at that point, so I was supervising the team that was 
um, doing all of the motion capture. So I would go and I would help choreograph and, and direct the motion capture shoot. So we had, we, we hired a bunch of stunt people, got them dressed up in um, as minotaurs and, and, and all these various um, mythical creatures. We had people on horseback playing centaurs. So we had motion capture dots on the actor and the horse, and then we kind of fused them together later into a centaur action. So, yeah, I, I'd start out at that, that point in the production, um, sort of choreographing all these fight scenes and these sort of one-on-one -on -one combat actions. And then I worked with the team back in the studio in London um, building these sort of what, what you might call virtual brains so that each one of these characters um, has its own awareness of the world around it. They can see where they are in the terrain. They can see where they are relative to their sort of enemies and they can identify somebody that they should go to battle with. Um, and then they, they create these massive organic battle sequences that are, that are really sort of realistic. Wow. So, man, this is so incredible. Uh, so th these things are, are happening in your computers while the actors don't see any of this stuff, right? Right. And then the, the putting it together, is that something like your team does that too, putting it together, the actors with all the stuff that only happened in your computers? Yeah. Yeah. So, so some of the people in the same, in the same company that I was in, um, you know, one person's job is to build the say the, the digital minotaur. Um, and that involves sort of designing a virtual CG skeleton and building all of the muscle and flesh and, and skin over the top of that and painting the, the, the fur and, you know, the, the sort of shiny horns and all of these different things. Um, and then, and then there, are, there, our team was responsible for sort of injecting all of those characters with movement. Um, and then another team, um, would be sort of taking some of them and if you know if there was something that was going to be hero in, in front of the camera um, They would you know do additional sort of animation work on that And then there's another team who's putting sort of shining virtual lights on these things So the lighting on the characters and creatures looks the same as the lighting of what they filmed on set And then there's another team of people whose job it is is to take all of those renders and combine them with what was filmed on set so there, you know, there might be um, several hundred shots, up to thousands of shots in the film that are done in this way, and each one might have a dozen people working on it in various capacities. This is so cool. So, Ollie, when, for example, when the actor ends up seeing these things for the first time, are you there? Are you showing them what's happening? Not often. No, usually yeah. the actors don't get to see it again until it's in the theaters. Mm. Um, so we'll, we'll tend to work with the director or with a representative of the director. Um, that will be um, sort of, you know, we need to get feedback from the director to ensure that we're telling the story in the way that they had in mind. Um, so often in my career, I've gotten to be the person to show something to the director for the first time. But it's, it's very unusual to, uh, for the actors to get a, a look behind the scenes. Cool, cool. So I know you, you said you got into it because you studied um, AI in the 90s, like way before it was cool. Yeah. So how, how do you get into virtual reality? So is, that, that's, is that a step past AI or is it kind of at the same level or are they completely different? Yeah, I mean, AI and VR, you know, people are using them a lot in the same sentence these days. 
um, and they're starting to understand how the two will inevitably kind of work together. Um, but they, they don't really have a lot of history of crossover. Um, you know, when I was studying AI, the main use for it was doing things like, you know, working for a bank to detect credit card fraud or predicting when the wings were going to fall off planes and these kind of, <laughs> these kind of things. Um, and so, you know, I, I sort of see them as, as separate fields of, of computer science. Um, I got into it because I, I just, you know, I was fascinated with computers. I, I taught myself to program on an old hand-me-down Atari. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I was fascinated with computer games in the 80s and 90s and um, yeah, sort of wanted maybe to get into doing something to do with that. Um, uh, but meanwhile, I'd sort of I'd had this thing in the back of my head because I'd been, you know, I watched movies like Tron. I read books like Neuromancer and Snow Crash. And so I had this whole sort of cyberpunk um, mentality and I you know I I was sure that that porn was going to be the reason that everybody would buy a VR headset and I thought that that would have happened a decade ago but of course the technology didn't um, didn't advance as fast as we hoped it would and so it's only really now with devices like the Oculus Quest that we're finally seeing a consumer level sort of plug-and-play VR device um, yeah, I, I'm just trying to think here somebody like you and me for example that you you love something before they remake it mm -hmm. and then you get to work on the remake how is that feeling like something like, for example tron you mentioned there was a very old version and, and now right. there's newer ones so when you get to work on something like that how how do you feel right, for one do they invite you or do you try to go into it yourself Yeah, I mean, the way that, that people end up working on films, uh, it, you know, you can come through a lot of different pathways. A lot of the time it depends just, it happens to be the, the company that you're working at gets to work on that film. And so whoever's working at that company will then, you know, maybe ask, oh, I want to work on that project. Mm -hmm. or, um, or sometimes the, the filmmakers will come to the studio and say, You know, we want to work with this particular team of people because we really like the work that they did on another film. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it can happen in a lot of different ways. Um, and I've sort of been lucky enough um, to, you know, to work at a number of really high-profile studios across the, the, the period of my career. So, you know, Weta Digital was where I got my, my big break in the beginning. Um, I worked at, at ESC, which was a, a company that was set up entirely to do the matrix sequels in um in in the bay area and i was sort of headhunted to join that team um through a, a friend of mine who i'd worked with on the lord of the rings then the studio that i worked at in london you know um, that studio was working on 10 or 20 movies every year so you know the, you would just get to work on an enormous variety of projects that that way holly uh i was just thinking of something how do you feel when you there's this big movie that comes out where you you put work into and there's mm -hmm. i'm guessing there's months of work to go into it oh yeah and when it ends a lot of people if it's in the theater people get up and they start walking out before the credits how does that feel for somebody like you like that's where where you're gonna shine D does it bother you It doesn't bother me at all. No. Um, there's a dirty little secret that I, um, you know, that some of my former colleagues probably wouldn't like to hear, but I don't always stay for the credits either. <laughs> um, 
you know, I mean, if, if I've seen some particularly good work and I'm curious to know um, which studio worked on it, I might, I might stick around. But um, yeah, I think, I think that the way that people in the, the visual effects industry actually, um, you know, get their, get their recognition is usually through things like their IMDB profile, their LinkedIn, their resume. You know, if I'm, if I'm hiring people with a, a certain skill set, um, it's not that I've seen their name in the credits that, that I'll yeah. know whether I should hire them or not. It's, you know, it's their resume, it's their showreel. Um, so yeah, I think I'm not somebody that's particularly bothered by people walking out and missing the credits. All right. So because you know how pretty much every, every scene is done, when you watch a movie, you, you probably don't see it like everybody else. Are you looking at, wow, that, that was pretty cool. You're looking at the special effects and judging them instead of watching the movie. Is that it? It does, it does become hard to watch a movie just for entertainment's sake, mm. yeah. Um, if the visual effects are sort of above a certain quality threshold, though, I'm able to sort of shut my mind off and just enjoy the, the film or the TV show. But it, especially if something is done badly, it'll kind of pull me out of the, the film or the, or the show and then, and then I'll start to pay more attention to it. Um, and my girlfriend and I, you know, she, she also worked in the same field. And you know, if we watch movies with, say, her family, um, they'll always be <laughs> complaining that we go, if <laughs> 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 we see something that's not very good. How about, how about the ones that are done badly on purpose? You, you know, like Sharknado, that's mm-hmm. something that's actually pretty, pretty cool. Because sure. it's, it's done badly on purpose. Now, I don't know about the first ones, but... Uh, can you find those funny? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. And, and it's something that, you know, as visual effects people, we kind of have our own sort of inside jokes where we will deliberately do something badly just, you know, to make each other laugh. <laughs> um, and, and the other thing to bear in mind is something that, that we know when we're watching a movie and you see a bad visual effects shot. Um, it's not necessarily the fault of the people that, that were working on the shot. A lot of the time, some of the hardest shots get left until the very, very last minute, or they don't even get added. They don't even get put in the movie until the very end where the, you know, it's one week from the deadline and the studio watches the movie through and somebody says, huh, I can't really tell what the, what this scene is supposed to be about. We need to add a couple more shots. And so they will add these ridiculously elaborate shots right at the very end of the schedule. And, and the people that are already exhausted from working, you know, 50, 60, up to 100 hours a week um, or more might be, you know, suddenly have these, these huge um, sort of complex shots thrown onto their plate at the last minute. So, you know, there's, there's not enough time to do enough iterations to, to get the shots up to the same quality as the rest of the film. So you also, as a, as a visual effects um, person, you also have to have a little bit of sympathy for the people that have worked on these shots mm-hmm. because they're often not going to be happy with it either. So now there's something that comes to mind, and I don't think it's VR. I think it's AR, uh, augmented mm-hmm. reality. And not too long ago, I tried something on my phone, which is, you know, the tiny device, and I could put furniture in my house and look mm-hmm. and, and check it out and see what it looks like. So I just started thinking, if I can do that with a couple clicks of a button on a cell phone, I wonder what can be done with a really powerful device 
uh, like the ones that you guys probably use to work with. Mm -hmm. So it's basically what we see is not the maximum that can be done or, or is it that thing I see on a phone? Is that top of the line? Um, the phones are actually in terms of augmented reality devices, mm -hmm. the phones are around about the, you know, the, like the latest generation of iPhone is just about the best augmented reality device out there. The Microsoft HoloLens 2, the Magic Leap, you know, these, these devices are, um, they're, you know, they're, you wear them as glasses rather than holding a phone, but because you wear them as glasses, they have to make sacrifices in terms of the amount of computation. So they, they're, it's not like they have a supercomputer built inside them. They're basically working with similar kind of um, hardware as a phone. So at the moment, yeah, I think the phones are around about the, the top of the line in terms of augmented reality. Um, and they're only getting better, of course. And um, yeah, so expect to see a lot more of that sort of thing where, you know, maybe next time you go shopping for clothes, instead of going into the, to the, the fitting room and trying on the clothes, you'll hold your phone up and do a selfie of yourself and you'll see those phone, uh, those, see those clothes rather on your body. Um, I think that sort of thing is going to become more and more the way that we shop. Yeah, man, I can see that. So whoever, whoever gets that going, uh, Amazon's probably going to buy the idea right away. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot of people working on that right now. So Ollie, you, you mentioned games and you work with VR. So have you been involved with games too? Um, only, only in a little extent. I've worked on a few different VR and mixed reality games, um, but they were no, no sort of AAA titles that anybody's um, heard of. Also released a, an iPhone game myself a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, so games are something that I've always been fascinated with, but it's not sort of my, my focus as much because, you know, I'm really interested in storytelling, in sort of engaging you know, humans in, in human stories. And so that's, yeah, that's been my focus more than games. Okay. And your business is pan sensory, uh, interactive, right? Pan sensory. That's right. Yeah. So what exactly does, does your business do? Is it everything that we talked about? Um, yeah, I mean, it's mostly focused on sort of storytelling in VR and immersive and interactive storytelling. So stories where, you are a character in the story. So it's almost, in that way, it's almost like a game, um, but the stories are aimed to have sort of more emotional depth and, you know, be less about, you know, they're certainly not about shooting things or, uh, but there might be some puzzles that you have to solve. There may be some character interactions that, that, that take the form of puzzles. So downloaded, for instance, you mentioned that in the introduction. That was a, um, it's a, interactive short film we we just made it as a as a sort of a 10 minute piece um mm -hmm. back in 2018 2019 um it got its premiere at the venice biennale and uh, and it was supposed to be showing at some more festivals right now but of course covid has kind of mm -hmm. shut down film festivals um but uh, downloaded is a um, it's a science fiction. It's very much inspired by those sort of science fiction and cyberpunk stories that I grew up with as a kid. So it's got a little bit of a Tron aspect to it or a bit of a neuromancer aspect, bit of a, um, I, I like to call it Tron meets the maker community. Hmm. So imagine if there's a technology that allows you to digitize the human consciousness, 
But instead of Facebook or Google having invented that technology, it's a bunch of hackers at home in their sort of garages who've figured out how to build this technology. And now you have built it. You've built one of these things in collaboration with the other, the, this, this female lead character in the story. The two of you have built this thing. It's called an atomizerator, which is designed to digitize your consciousness and download it to a computer. And you're testing it out with you as the guinea pig, and it works. And so that's how you get into the story, is you go through this, this sort of process of your consciousness being digitized, sort of like this wormhole, the swirling wormhole effect. And then now, all of a sudden, you're trapped inside of a computer, and you're looking out through the screen into the real world. So we filmed the actress in live action, and we did a laser scan of the real world set so that what you see when you're looking out through the screen of the computer as you kind of move your head around in VR looks like absolute real reality, photoreal digital reality. Um, so there's this actress, you can, you know, as you move your head, you get parallax, you see past her, she's at the right sort of scale and depth. And then all around you is this virtual kind of cyber computer world. Um, it's the sort of the internal virtual architecture of the computer. And now you can, you figure out, or you don't, you either figure out that you can manipulate the computer by grabbing the mouse on the screen and moving it around and interacting with her. And you can post on her social media feed and you can communicate with her that way, or you can just sort of work on your own and try and um, you know, adjust the computer architecture to reverse the polarity of the machine to print yourself back out into the real world. Oh, yeah. I, that's like one of, one of the coolest things I, I ever heard. I... I'm wearing a, a VR set to, to watch mm -hmm. this. That's right. And whatever I do, headset. whatever I do is interacts with the movie itself. Yeah. You yeah. So you're kidding. wearing, you're wearing a headset and you have these controllers in your hand. And so those controllers are, they, they end up being like a sort of a, this, you know, magical laser pointer that allows you to grab hold of the mouse pointer and move it around. Um, but we, we filmed a lot of different variations of the story and so, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've come across the Choose Your Own Adventure books and there was that Bandersnatch on, um, on Netflix last year, which did a similar sort of thing where it sort of stops the story and asks you to decide, do you want to do this or do you want to do that? I never really liked that because I always feel like that pulls you out of the story. And I wanted the story to be seamless and I wanted to take advantage of the fact that in real life, most of the time when we make a decision, we don't actually stop and think, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to have those consequences. We just, you know, automatically do whatever we do. We choose to sit next to somebody in a theater and maybe we get into a conversation with that person and it might alter the future of our lives. So I wanted to kind of make these, these transparent choices. Um, so in Downloaded, when uh, it's not that you, you're ever asked to make a decision, but there's sort of a, an algorithm running in the background that's just observing your behavior. And based on your behavior, it causes the story to branch. So I, I'm actually off the top of my head, I've forgotten how many permutations of the story it is, but it's something like um, 40 or 50 permutations of the story, depending on what you do while you're in there. There's only two different outcomes. Either you succeed at printing yourself back out into the real world, or you get trapped in the computer forever. But you have different interactions with the other character on the way and you cause her to have different kind of character development. So she either comes out of it more humble or, or not. Um, wow. 
So you know what I like the most about that is the the older version of doing it where you pick uh, ending A or ending B. Mm-hmm. What sucks is that if I pick ending A, I'm always thinking, what would have happened on ending B? And no matter what, you're going to go back and then you're going to watch them both. And right. it kind of ruins it a little bit because you know you didn't pick. They were just – they were both there already. But right. in this situation – it's almost like you, it's happening real time. It's happening right there. So, That's right. Wow. And yeah, so we're at the moment, we're in the process of raising money to take what we've built, which is kind of like a, a prototype, really. I mean, it was very, it was amazing that we got this prototype into all of these film festivals. Um, but we want to take that prototype and turn it into a series of 10, 30 minute episodes. But kind of like a, a Black Mirror, but not as bleak. Um, you know, at the end of every Black Mirror episode, you're depressed and thinking, oh, my God, the future of humanity is hopeless. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> at, the end, at the end of an episode of Downloaded, I want you to think, okay, things could go really wrong if we make bad choices, but if we make better choices, we could actually improve the world. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's another big part of, of what motivates me in storytelling is you know, ways that you can convince the audience that, you know, to look at their own lives and look at their own decisions, look at their own biases and see, well, what changes can we make? How can I, how can I contribute to a better world and a better future? That is so cool. Oh yeah. I I cannot wait. So this, this kind of movie experience, uh, will it ever be able to be experienced in a movie theater? Because not everybody's going to have that special headset, right? right? Yeah, I think I think we're still several years away from people having VR headsets at home, just sort of as a as a baseline default. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know there there have been a lot of VR arcades popping up around the world, and, and part of our business model with this was to you know license it out to, to VR arcades. Obviously, the the coronavirus is is having an impact on people's uh, willingness to put on a VR headset. You know, there's a sort of um, <clears throat> hygiene issues that that become a little bit more dangerous when you have a pandemic going on. Um, but I think, yeah, I think VR arcades are going to be a, a, a major way that people will consume this kind of content going forward. Um, and then I do think um, that within a couple of years, there's going to be like a you know, you remember when um, smartphones had been around for a little while, right? The BlackBerry, everybody in business had a BlackBerry, yes. but it was the iPhone that came along and, and suddenly um, smartphones went from being something that a, a certain sector of society had to something that everybody had. And I think we're going to have a similar kind of moment with, with VR where, you know, at the moment it's sort of early adopters, a lot of gamers and a lot of sort of tech nerds like myself that, that have them. But, you know, there's going to, there's going to be a VR headset that comes out or an AR headset and it maybe it's from Apple or maybe it's from, you know, Samsung, who knows, um, but there will be a device that comes out and that has a sort of a content and application ecosystem as sort of advanced as the, as the iOS app store was that will cause people to go out en masse and, and buy VR headsets. I was thinking that until recently, I thought that the 4D experience I had once, there was a 4D movie in Las Vegas that I watched where it was very short, but you would sit in the theater 
And there was a fight scene of, I think it was Loki, Hulk, Spider-Man, everybody was in there. Mm. And mm. you actually get to feel like Hulk busted some tubes, hydraulic tubes, and I got wet. And then Loki poked me in the back and I, I started to get jumpy. I'm like, what the heck? Man? <laughs> so it's it's the 3D movie plus you have you can feel things. So now I'm just imagining if I have a VR set mm-hmm. and I can feel the wind when somebody opens a window, that will get really uh it would be cool but freaky at the same time. Totally. Yeah, there and there are some people experimenting with that already. Like a couple of years ago, um, quite a, a groundbreaking VR piece called Birdly came out, where you sort of you lie down on a table and they strap your arms onto these wings. You put on the VR headset and you fly like a bird. And there's a fan blowing in your face, and you can sort of you know you can control your direction. Um, then another example is The Void. I'm not sure if you've heard of The Void, but that's a sort of a multiplayer VR laser tag, if you will, mm-hmm. where you and a group of friends, you go in, you get suited up in VR headsets, and, and maybe the one, that I, the one that I did was the Ghostbusters experience. So you get dressed up as the Ghostbusters, and you're holding your, uh, I can't remember what the, the weapon thing yeah. was called that the Ghostbusters had, but you've each got one of those, and you go into this experience, and yeah, you're, you're wearing a VR headset, so you can't see. You're actually just in a black room, um, but it seems like you're in, you know, you're in an apartment building in New York City. And then the wall, one of the windows and wall get blown out, and so the wind comes blowing in, and you feel the wind. And then you step out onto this platform, and they have a wobbly platform, and you're <laughs> right, and the wind is still blowing. And then in the end, you fry the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, and you can smell the burning marshmallow. Wow. So yeah, all of these little tricks that bring other senses into the experience, just make it that much more real. Oh man, that is going to be, it's going to be so incredible. I, I tried once walking on one of those wobbly things. I, I don't know the name of it, but it was with a VR headset mm-hmm. on top and top of this apartment building. And they asked me to walk over to the edge and jump. And I knew where I was. I was in the living room. I knew that. But when I got to the edge of that apartment and my job was to jump, I couldn't do Holly, it was it was it was so real that I took my glasses off two, three times. The VR, I lifted it, I'm like, <laughs> I'm still here. Why can't I do this? Uh it, it was scary how real it was. And then when you jump, you you actually just you're still in the same living room. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, man, I, uh, these things are, I don't know if I'm getting old, but it's, um, it feels like it's going so fast. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty amazing what can happen. And, you know, some, um, some friends of mine did a, a, really, um, a really cool piece where you are a tree and you get to experience growing from a seed all the way up to a tree. Um, I'm not going to spoil the ending for you, but you have all of these sort of forest smells as well that just... Uh, that make you feel like you're really there. Um, yeah, so it, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing what you can do by, by introducing other senses. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. You know, by default, the headsets come with a little bit of haptic. You know, the, the, um, the hand controllers will vibrate yeah. and you get those same sort of haptic feedback. Um, but, you know, there's so many different things that you need to add to make the experience fully real. 
Um, for instance, you know, um, Oculus are doing all of this experimentation at the moment where they, they'll film your facial expressions so that your avatar in VR can be as expressive as your real face would be. Um, so that's another area where, you know, we're increasing the realism of the virtual world to bring it closer and closer to reality. And Ollie, if, if you're working on something like this, are, are you working with a, like a normal gaming computer? Like, I don't know, like an Alienware? Or are we talking about hundreds of gigs of RAM and special <laughs> graphics? Uh, no, pretty much, pretty much um, the same sort of machine that you would use for, for high-end gaming is what you use for developing VR on. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. You can do it on a, on a laptop. Um, there, there are people that are doing some pretty amazing work on, you know, fairly bare bones machines. Yeah. Um, but obviously the more computer power you have, the better. But then the flip side of that is that if you build something on the highest end machine, um, then it's only going to run on the highest end machine. And you want to make it accessible to as many people as possible. So it's better to build it on a lower spec machine so that it will have a, a bigger potential audience. Got it. Got it. Ollie, have you been involved with any other startups? Um, yeah, I've been involved with quite a few. Um, I, I worked for, for a while in, in New York and in Vancouver as well with a, a startup called uh, Uncorporeal, which are, have actually pivoted now and are called Beyond View. But that's a, a company that specializes in sort of reality capture, so taking the real world um, and bringing that into VR. We, we started out focused on what we call volumetric performance capture, where you film a person from hundreds of cameras and you turn them into a VR hologram. They're now more focused on the sort of um, enterprise applications, so like digitizing spaces for architecture or real estate or you know other sort of applications like that. Um, I'm also working with a, a startup called VR Jam. Um, and we just had a, a, an amazing big event this past week. Um, so the July 4th long weekend, um, VR Jam in partnership with Shangri-La, Glastonbury and Sanzar hosted the world's first multi-day, multi-stage virtual uh, music and arts festival. So we had DJs like Fatboy Slim and Carl Cox and Pete Tong and Seth Troxler and bands like Alabama 3 and My Bad Sister and um, art from hundreds of artists like Shepard Ferry and Mark Titchener in this virtual experience that you could you could put on a VR headset and you could have this very visceral, very real experience of being like at a rave surrounded by hundreds of other people with a light show and lasers and video projections and you could see, you know, Fatboy Slim or whichever DJ it was there as a hologram performing to you and you could have the same sort of random conversations that you might have with people on the dance floor. Or you can also just attend using your PC, like in gaming mode. So in the same way that they have concerts in, in Fortnite, um, you could kind of show up like that. And then also we had thousands of people streaming from the app and actually millions of people streaming on their PCs and phones. So yeah, that was, that was quite an amazing experience. So you could actually interact with Carl Cox, for example, and he can see you too uh, the same way? 
No. So the, the performers, most of the performers were pre-recorded um, okay. video. Some of the performers like Cold Cup, for instance, one of my uh, favorite sort of um, electronic acts from, from the UK in the 90s, um, Cold Cup appeared as digital avatars. So in one of their albums, I think it was in the early 90s, they had this, this album called uh, Let Us Play and a, and a remix album called Let Us Replay where they one of their artist friends designed this sort of um, almost Mr. Potato Head-like figurines of them. Um, so we took those sort of toys and we turned them into um, fully articulated CG avatars. And then we used motion capture to drive those avatars in real time. So they're bopping around on the stage and yeah. Ollie, yeah, I'm, very fun. I'm so thankful for the things that you, that you're working on and developing you and others. It's um, like you said, when, when the, the episodes of black mirror ended, I mean, the experience was amazing, but there was always that thought like, okay, th this is going to be bad. The future is <laughs> going to be terrible. But I mean, you're giving me hope that there's there's so many good things that this is going to bring uh, for businesses for entertainment. This is, I mean, I uh, I wish I, I wish I knew more because, like you, in the '90s when the there was a robot movie that came out, Robot Number Five, and he was somewhat smart. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn AI. I didn't know the the term AI, but I wanted to learn it. I want to be the one creating that robot, but just, looking back now was not very complicated. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Johnny Five, yeah. it's alive. Yeah. That's it, you know it. <laughs> yes, oh man. So listen, Ollie, for everybody listening, besides PenSensory, it's PenSensory.com. That's where they would find mm -hmm. it, correct? Absolutely. Where else, where else would you want people to go to, to learn? Yeah. More? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a great way to connect with me. I'm Ollie Rankin, O-L-L-I-E-R-A-N-K-I-N, all one word on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, you can find also um, my other main project at the moment is called From the Trees to the Stars, um, which is mostly based on Facebook. That's a, uh, that's a, a project for advocating for diversity, fairness, and sustainability. So Um, that's another thing that I'm that I'm spending a lot of my energy on, and I encourage people to connect to that as well. And you mentioned when that um, the upgrade, I guess, of download uh, mm -hmm. comes out, you're going to look for for funding for that. Is that like crowdsourcing or uh, other types of funding? Yeah, we're we're definitely exploring the possibility of of crowdfunding it. Um, We're hoping at the moment that we might be able to get a big, um, one of the big technology companies to throw in a chunk of change for it. And there are also, as you well know, the, the Canadian government has a lot of programs at the federal and provincial level for supporting um, arts and, and, and creative projects. So we're also exploring getting uh, getting government grants to, to fund it as well. Very good. If, if it does yeah. get to crowdsourcing, let me know. I'll uh, I'll share it here when it's available yeah, for... For Thank you. Tonight. Yes, and, and people can look at uh, downloadedvr.com to learn more about downloaded. So downloadedvr.com. I'll get that all on the show notes. Great, Ollie. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. I uh, I cannot wait to check out downloaded and and everything else. But that's going to be uh, that's going to be my next thing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you.
Cheers. Thanks for subscribing to FailFast Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and visit FailFastPodcast.com for show notes, Quinn's social media, or even to tell us your story.